0: Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Autographed, allograft, xenograft, alloplast This sounds like a foreign language to me, but for Dr. Andrew Chang, this is pretty much his second language. Welcome back to What I Wish I Knew. My name's Erica, and we're back with part three of my chat with Dr. Andrew Chang. And today, we have a 101 crash course on graphs, because I don't know about you, but I don't really know all that much about them. So in this episode, Dr. Andrew Chang talks me through the fundamentals of what is a graph, and we talk through the differences in soft tissue graphs, high tissue graphs, and how he uses them in his day-to-day practice. So without further ado, let's jump straight into it.
1: I would say, I think talking about like graphs, you're talking about either um, bone or you're talking about soft tissue. Now soft tissue, there's, I think soft tissue is a lot more complex to sort of delve into. So let's focus on bone. Um, Bone graphs are something where, for example, like there's so many different techniques where you're either, for example, preserving something like, for example, when a tooth is removed and you're trying to minimize the bony remodeling or the the resorption of the alveolar process that occurs, because you always get some shrinkage or you always lose some bone, just depends on how much, Um, or you can graft and actually um, build back or replenish more bone. And that can either be, for example, um, horizontal in terms of buccal like thickness and width or that can be like vertical or a combination um, and I guess the complexity of that also depends on what you've got around there and the patient factors like whether it's within the bony envelope or outside of the bony envelope if that makes sense so like if for example like you know when you when you read with the studies there's like you know two three four wall defects and all that stuff it, it all sort of makes a difference in terms of um, predict- predictability and complexity and success rates of your graft as well I think with graphs um, I think that the most uh, simple ones to do are those sort of um, four wall defects where you sort of um, I-, I see it as like you know you you take a tooth out you've got a um, extraction socket and then you've got basically, intact bony plates and and bone all around. So I I always tell patients it's sort of like a little container. It's like a box where you've taken the tooth out and the box is empty. Now, some patients you can, and this is a debatable topic too, some patients you can take the tooth out and they've got enough thickness or, you know, more than two or three mils of, you know, buccal bone or palatal bone, and then sometimes they don't need a graft and that's completely okay as well. But sometimes there are cases where um, it will benefit from actually putting a space maintainer or something in that box so that you don't get as much shrinkage. Now, you always get some shrinkage, like whether it's 50%, whether it's a little bit, but the main thing I think with you know soccer grafts and ridge preservation is you get two benefits in terms of minimizing that sort of, sort of resorption and shrinkage of the bone, but also you help to sort of space maintain and hold that soft tissue out as well. So that can really help too. Um, I think with any sort of like bigger graft, then... Um, when you start to learn like GBRs, like guided bone regeneration um, and stuff like that, then there's a common thing that's always like we all learn and it's called um, the principles of bone grafting and it's called PASS. So it's P-A-S-S. It's like one of those, what's it called mnemonics and everything for, for the principles for any sort of successful bone grafting. So the P stands for um, primary closure. So primary closure, that's tension-free. So primary closure means for example, if your your um, bony ridge is really really thin and you're trying to improve that area for you know uh, bone quality and quantity and thickness to actually put an implant in, then you need to make sure that you've got good amount and quality of gum that you can actually reflect the gum away, clean everything off, put the bone graft in, and then close it without tension. Because the most and this is probably the most the most important um, and the most difficult thing about any sort of grafting or any sort of implant dentistry because it's all about your closure and it's all about your suturing and your flap management so what that means is you need to make sure that you know um when you close the area that it's not too tight or there's enough tension that you've released the flaps and everything enough and then you've closed it in a way that after you know seven days or after two weeks or anything like that that it heals without any sort of opening. Because if there's any opening and the bone and the membrane and everything that you've put in, or even the soft tissue gets exposed or moves, then it fails because it's like micromotion with the implants. You get some movement, bacteria gets in, and then it all gets infected. And then you sort of scoop it out. So that's number one. Um, the second is like angiogenesis, which is like, um, you have to think and be conscious of like blood supply. So that's like, you know, the bone from, sorry, the, the blood supply from, for example, the bone around it, the blood supply from um periodontium like teeth the blood supply for example from you know the gums and soft tissue around it like that's all really really important because how you get um healing of your bone graft or your gum graft is the access to like um regenerative cells so you need to make sure that there's you know it's not like avascular and that you, may, you need to make sure that there's enough blood supply um to the area so with bone grafting sometimes that's just making sure that Um, you know, the the bony plates around it are good and you've got the blood supply there. Sometimes it influences your flap design as well. Um, Whether you like sort of raise vertical incisions which disrupt blood supply, whether you, you know, sort of it, like there's so many little things that we can talk about with that as well. Um, But it's more so just making like even even when you start to learn more about like gum grafting and stuff like that, like um, free gingival grafts, there's areas where you want to make sure that, you get like a really nice vascular periosteal bed, and you've got to sort of dissect that carefully so that your soft tissue can actually sit on that and stay on that and actually heal. Because if, for example, you don't get enough blood supply, you don't get enough regenerative cells to the area, then the whole area necroses and sort of dies and then So, fails. was that
0: blood supply? Because you mentioned before with like the primary closure, that's very much like your your flap design. And then with the with the angiogenesis, is that also part of your flap design, or like what other? yeah it's so so
1: i guess your blood supply comes from your flap as well but it can i guess it depends on the situation but your blood supply can come for example in cases where you're doing gum grafts sometimes you get blood supply underneath so if you imagine it like a sandwich and you get like periosteum and stuff where you've dissected that you get blood supply and regenerative cells from there you put your soft tissue there and sometimes there are cases where for example you might coronally advance the outside flap so then that way you get you get like a sandwich where you've got blood supply on the inside and you've got blood supply on the outside, and that nourishes and helps to sort of you know improve success of your graft. But it's 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 very different because with gum grafting, there's a lot of different techniques. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of like, for example, like tunneling or like um, the Vista approach, where sometimes we might instead of raising a full flap, we might actually tunnel and you know feed and manipulate the tissue sort of inside so that. The less that you sort of expose the bone and the less that you sort of open things up, the more blood supply and healing and stuff that you have. Um, So that's like blood supply is always super important. So that's what you have to consider with your flap design and stuff like that as well. Um, And then that's PA. And then there's the last two S's are essentially space maintenance, which is what we discussed about before. So especially with bone um, grafting, like space maintenance is something where you have to make sure that Uh, so the principle is bone takes a lot longer to heal. Excuse me, bone takes a lot longer to heal or regenerate compared to soft tissue. So a common thing, and I don't know how true this is, but I think I've read this in the papers, roughly like you should expect that bone will grow at a millimeter per month and soft tissue will grow half a mil sort of per day or per every few days. So soft tissue grows really, really quick compared to bone, which grows really, really slowly. So space maintenance and I guess, Um, cell occlusiveness. So what that means is when you do like a bone graft or something, the reason why you often, you put the bone in and then you put like a membrane or like a lid over the box is because you want to contain and protect that bone so that the gum cells or the soft tissue cells don't infiltrate and get in. Because the most common thing I guess is if, for example, you get exposure of your bone, um, but like, you know, it doesn't get infected and it heals okay, is sometimes when you end up going back and re-entering, the bone quality may not be good. What that means is if, for example, you've had, uh, and it's called fiber integration, but if you've had like soft tissue that's like infiltrated and I guess invaded the bone, then what happens is the bone can just, you know, it's not like really, really good bone that you can put in in implanting in terms of sometimes I've had cases where you go back in and then you just end up scooping that bone out because the bone graft hasn't, had enough space maintenance or like it's been invaded by that soft tissue um <clears throat> the last one is obviously stability so graph stability making sure that things don't move so those i guess are the four main principles to sort of consider with like mainly bone grafting but like gum grafting and stuff as well
0: you were mentioning at the very beginning where you said like you know when you take out a tooth and like you're assessing the socket right and you're saying like the ideal situation and how not every situation needs a graft and sometimes there is enough thickness but like how often do you think there would need or would you almost do it like blanket statement like everyone you would just do a graft
1: Mm. this is a really controversial topic and everyone you ask will give a different opinion for me personally, with my experience, um if like there are some cases where I've been surprised where you take like a molar out and there's enough like more than two millimeters of thickness of plate, then generally in some cases you won't get as much shrinkage. Right. So what that means is you take it out, you come back in maybe like, you know, two months or three months, and you can put the implant in and then it's it's still quite nice. But I've also done those cases where I thought there may have been enough and then it sort of shrunk a bit too much. I've had to sort of compensate and either, you know, change the angle of the implant or do another graft. So for me personally, I would say like I have the tendency to what, what works in my hands, um, and this isn't really like research based, but what, what works for me is I usually will do ridge preservation where I can, as long as the patient understands what, what we're doing. And as long as the patient understands that even though we might do this ridge preservation, in three to four months, we may still need another graft, if that makes sense. Like sometimes there are cases where we graft it, but then sometimes it still shrinks and then um, you still need to sort of, you know, account for that and and fix that because it's biology.
0: So you kind of play it on the safe side, right?
1: Yeah. I would say for me personally, like I do like, especially for, for back teeth and stuff like that, if we don't do an immediate implant or something like that, then I'll usually grafted um sometimes there are cases where the bone already is too thin where like doing a soccer graft is not going to improve much what that means is when you do a socket graft you actually don't um, and socket graft is probably the wrong term to use because we're, we're, we're preserving the ridge but when you're doing a ridge preservation you're not actually gaining more bone you're sort of just trying to minimize how much bone is lost so if the case comes in and the bone's already thin Um, and you've got an empty socket there, I usually, like, if, for example, the case needs a horizontal GBR or horizontal bone graft to gain more bone, then I usually won't do the socket graft then because it'll need a bone graft later anyways. Um, But then it's about timing because when you consider bone grafting, you also need to consider your soft tissue because remember how I said stability of the wound, stability of the graft, and, like, primary closure? You need to consider, like, how your how you're going to close over everything and like, are you going to do that with different techniques where you can leave a membrane exposed or you're going to do that stage where you improve the gum and then you can use that gum to close. Um, I would say most cases when I do a ridge preservation, um, yeah, like I'll do it quite commonly in my practice because I find that when I go back in three months or four months that it works quite well. Um, But it depends on the overall picture as well. That's why I say you always have to have a plan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> In terms of materials, is there a difference or like do you have a bit of like an armamentarium of like, you know how they talk about, oh, yeah, you know, autographs or allographs or, yeah, you know, xeno, Xenographs or, like, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you kind of like is there a – do you explore those different options or do you kind of have like your go-to ones or is, there a, is it case-by-case dependent? Like how's that kind of work?
1: It's very case-by-case dependent and kind of depends on what you want to achieve. Um, I've had good results with a lot of different materials. I would say what I use most commonly is probably allograft, which is like, you know, from cadavers and stuff like that. Um, and I use a lot of mineralized, so FTBA, so freeze-dried freeze bone allograft. That's what I use routinely, like 100% of the time, like 50-50 or you can use 70-30 or whatever it is. But I usually use 50-50 um, cancellous for my soccer grafts. And I find that when I go back in three to four months, the bone actually quite good. In cases where you're doing like more complex grafts, then you need to consider sometimes a mix. Like it, this is really case by case in terms of sometimes for a, um, within, you know, if I'm doing a horizontal bone graft where I'm actually doing a GBR and trying to improve the width where I might need, you know, only two, mil- two millimeters or three millimeters, then that might dictate what bone I use. So I might just use allograft and a resolvable collagen membrane. Sometimes in cases where you need more, than you have to use a different technique or you might have to consider like a mix of bone. And why that mix of bone is because you have to understand the different properties of each bone material. So like um, autographed, like autogenous bone, like from like scrapings or obtained from the patient is probably the gold standard because it, it, it has the potential to heal, to become like native bone. But sometimes like you might do like a mix or so you might do a sandwich in cases where, Um, like, for example, xenograft, which is like Biowas and stuff like that. Xenograft, for me personally, I've always thought that doesn't really turn into bone and it sort of just doesn't really get resolved, but they just act as like a scaffold. And sometimes that's what you need on maybe like the outer layer. So sometimes you can, for example, do like a sandwich where you pack like the autogenous and the allograft on the inside where you want it. And then you pack like a layer of xenograft on the outside because that xenograft will stay there. And although it's not like really... 100% native bone, it helps to support the soft tissue and everything on the very buckle extent. So, and also it kind of depends like even with like, for example, like sinus lifts, like the the bone that you use there might be different, internal sinus lifts, lateral windows, like you can use like, um, like synthetic things like that as well. But for me, I don't use Xenograft and I don't use synthetic a lot. I mainly use either the patient's own bone or Allograft.
2: The more you learn about orthodontics, the more you see it applying to almost every case. It might not always be necessary, but it's almost always an option. So then you think, I want to do aligners for my patients, and your challenge is to learn how to do that to a high standard. But once you've learned that, many people find that the challenge then is, how do you actually make that work within your practice? How do you make this efficient and therefore profitable enough for you to be able to provide that to your patients in private practice? There's two people I think about when I think about aligners and then practice management. That's Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green. And now they've come together to create Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform that is aiming to solve both of these problems for you in your practice, while also giving you huge discounts off the major aligner therapy companies. Over the next six years, a line of therapy is forecast to increase by 28%. This is a huge opportunity. Take it with both hands, clearex.com.au.
0: And when you went about learning all of like these different techniques, was it kind of something that, you know, you did a course on and they introduced everything to you? Did they kind of teach you everything? Or is it something that you, know, you had to dive into? Because in, I'm sure like each of them have their own way that you need to handle it
2: or like... Yeah
1: how, use it? yeah.
0: how did you go about diving into like each one like learning
1: how? I, to do? I think I think um on multiple courses and reading. I mean uh, that there's, there's a great great guy called Ehab Ehab Musa where I, I did his course I think in 2019 and then he sort of gave us a lot of theory and stuff about the different types of bone and different approaches with membranes and different techniques as well. Um, but then it's a lot, a lot. of it is reading, like the literature, and going back to you know. I know reading papers and stuff isn't isn't fun, but like sometimes we have to go back to the literature and then understand, you know, the success rates of this and this and what situation and stuff like that to understand more. But also just like asking people too, like that. The other thing too is like you you if you put ten to, 10 d- dentists in a room and ask them the same question, you get like 11 different opinions because <laughs> everyone will will use something based on their own experience or use something based on what they believe in. So I think it's important to get those principles from like, whether it's courses, whether it's just reading, um, even like online courses, there's heaps of really good online courses these days where you can sort of get some knowledge, but then you sort of have to do it yourself to, to, to sort of understand. Because even though I don't, I, I do like routinely all my rich preservations with other graft these days. Like I used to do them with like bioOS collagen, which is a Zinian graft, And then those ended up still healing fine as well. So yeah. Another thing too, you have to consider is not just the type of the bone, but the type of the membrane that you use as well. So the membranes, what you use to actually contain the bone graft, keep it stable, but also prevent soft tissue from getting in. And there's so many different membranes and those membranes depend on the technique that you use. And also, like, each company will have a different membrane that handles slightly differently. Um, So there's a lot of those things to consider too as well.
0: And I guess part of that also is just having all these materials. I guess this is probably very much influenced by the practice that you work at and, like, Mm. having those um, at your dispense. Did you ever have... In terms of these, were they always things that were available at your practice or have you ever been in a situation where you kind of wanted to start exploring um, a particular material and did you have to go about like trying to get your hands on that yourself?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's all about um, it you're you're really right in terms of the practice environment that you're in really governs what you do, like not just materials but like the instruments and stuff that you have. Um, sometimes I guess you get to a point where like you know when you start out you sort of just just use it because it's there or like you use it because your mentor uses it but then it's really important to sort of be objective and always um, be critical in terms of what you're using and why you're using it and is there a better alternative because sometimes they they have different membranes and stuff which or even different like suturing materials and stuff which I've definitely changed over time and we've sort of explored that over time Um, the good thing is like in my years in Townsville Matt and I were very like similar in terms of our thought process, and I learned a lot from him. But like we would always sort of explore, or well, we get something different, um, whether it's due to like cost, whether it's due to like the handling, or whether you just want to try it, you can you can sort of try that. And then it, it takes a bit of time to, to to sort of figure out those few materials that you really like, and those few materials that you use day in day out. So there's there's like a few materials that I always use day in day out um and like particular brands as well that i like too um but then i'm always open to like trying new ones so like sometimes it's it's like you know with like dental reps and stuff they'll um sometimes give you samples and stuff or you can sort of um you see someone else use it who you respect and you're like oh well i might try that or you ask them how it was because there's like so many different brands (laughs) And it can be really easy to get lost with it all. Because I think with bone grafts, we could talk for like hours or we talk for days yeah, about absolutely. it because there's so many different <laughs> techniques as well. And bone grafts and soft tissue, like they're both two different beasts, which they're very different. But then the principles are, are very similar in terms of how you do your flap and how you do your release and your closure and all that stuff. It all comes back to those basic principles, which is the past principles, Um like even with like bone grafts, like there's so many different ways of like stabilizing things, like with you know, whether you use like tacks or periosteal sutures or um, tenting screws, fixation screws, stuff like that, which I'm sure you'll learn as well. There's, there's so many different techniques and different membranes and it all depends on what sort of technique you're doing. And that all goes back to the case, like how, how difficult it is, how much bone you want to gain, whether it's horizontal, whether it's vertical bone as well. But I think the most important thing to learn is, like, respect the soft tissue and then be really comfortable with, um, like, flap management, if that makes sense. Like, the biggest thing about bone grafting, the biggest success is you can probably put whatever you like in there. um, But then the biggest thing is, like, how you clean things out, so how you degranulate and remove all the infection, because that's that probably takes me the longest, and then how you close um and closing is really hard because closing is something where which always happens at the end of the surgery when you're tired and the patient's sort of get a bit, getting a bit angst, angsty and they're sort of moving around a little bit but the closure is the most important and that's not just like suturing techniques and where you put the suture like you know there's so many details of that but it's also managing your flap too in terms of um one thing that i thought was really cool as i sort of le- learned about grafting is you really start to dissect the tissue layers So what that means is when you raise a flap for like a wisdom tooth or something, you'll raise a full thickness flap. In some areas of bone grafting, you'll raise a full thickness flap, but then you'll actually split that flap in some areas more apically. And why you split that flap is because you want the periosteum and everything like that to stay on the bone. Sometimes you can, as like a pouch or an anchor for us to suture to. Or to like tuck the bone and the membrane into, <clears throat> but also sometimes to just get mobility f- so that you can actually stretch the tissue and actually close it. But that's something that's like really important in, in all types of grafting. So I think like, I don't know, with, with implants, like putting an implant is easy, but like the, the, the thing about implants is we have to understand the bone and the gum and how to manage those as well to be like complete. And it's always something that I'm learning.
0: Absolutely. Uh, something I wanted to ask was look, if you could talk me through just like the different types of like soft tissue grafts. And something that I, I wanted to ask about is just the concept of like harvesting it. Where do you get <laughs> where where mm. do you get the grafts from? And I guess yeah. we see we see the, that piece, but like we don't really see the behind the scenes of like you know where you took it from yeah. or like how that kind of works.
1: Yeah. So I would say there's three main areas: um, the palate, the tuberosity. So at the very very back, like mizalir tuberosity. Or well, sometimes you get lucky and, for example, a patient who has no teeth, you can do it from the ridge. So what that means is, like, let's say, for example, you imagine someone who's had a full denture for years on the top. They've got all that tissue. You can sometimes take it on the ridge. I've never taken it from the ridge, though. I always either go palate or tuberosity. Um, how and where you take the graft depends on, like, uh, what quality of tissue you want and what quantity you want, too. I would say palate's probably more common because palate you can take more tissue. But it also depends on the technique that you're using. Like for for a free gingival graft where you want the epithelium on the outside, you, you take that from the palate because you need a big strip, but you also want the epithelium on the outside, so you basically just cut a trunk off. There are cases, though, where sometimes there's different harvesting techniques from um, the palate to sort of um, get like your soft tissue. Like sometimes there are cases where you'll – you'll sort of open like a mini flap or a trap door and you'll dissect like the, the connective tissue grafts underneath and then you'll close it back up. So you're sort of like opening like a slit and then you sort of, you know, dissecting the layers, get the CTG out and then you'll close it back up. But then sometimes like personal preference, that, that can be a lot more difficult. And then sometimes when you dissect it because it's not fully even, sometimes it can be a bit thin. So then there are times where, for example, you could take um, like a full thickness, like, like an FGG harvest. But then when you do it with your soft tissue graft, sometimes you need to remove that epithelium if you're putting it underneath, if that makes sense. So sometimes what you do is you'll take a full thickness harvest to get the thickness, and then you will actually de-epithelize it outside. So you've got a thick area of, of the CTG, and then you can like secure it in a tunnel or secure it um, underneath a flap or something like that. But Yeah going on a tangent again but the two main areas are mainly the palate and then tuberosity um palate is like your go-to normally but tuberosity is really really nice um tissue that over time can actually like grow um because it's really collagenous it's really really thick so sometimes if you take tuberosity but tuberosity is pretty small so sometimes you do it for like a single tooth like what what you commonly take tuberosity is for whether, whether you do like a um like you want to boost the soft tissue around an anterior implant or something like that, then sometimes you'll take a tuberosity graft from there and it'll be awesome. It'll be like super thick and that's sometimes what you need.
2: What are you focusing on this year? What are the CPD topics, the... That- disciplines that you really want to get better at and how do you find all the information out there on those topics? cpdjunkie.com.au is made to be a comprehensive directory of CPD in Australia and New Zealand. We created this because we found this frustrating and now there is a system where you can be alerted if there's topics that come up that you are interested in. Make an account at cpdjunkie.com.au and update your alert settings. Every month on the 20th, we send an email sending you the information specific that you want to know about. Interested in communication, aesthetics and orthodontics? Same. Update your alert settings now. Take your CPD to the next level with cpdjunkie.com.au
0: I wanted to ask you... I guess just like the indications for when you use your um, soft tissue grafts, right? So like aesthetics would be part of the, and then the soft tissue adaptation. Could you talk me through like what – because I, I know we talked about it before with like bone grafts and why we use them, but can you talk through like why we use soft tissue grafts and what role that they play?
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, the two roles that they play is either you can do soft tissue grafting around teeth or you can do soft tissue grafting around implants. For me personally, I think soft tissue grafting around teeth is super complex and really, really difficult and it's something I'm still learning. So when you graft around teeth, sometimes you have cases where you want to treat recession. Sometimes you have cases where the recession, like on a lower anterior, due to ortho and stuff, the tissue is already so thin or there's root exposure and stuff like that. Sometimes you can't actually fix that, um, fully fix the recession because, because of the miller's class three or four, whatever, it's already so bad. But then sometimes you just want to prevent further recession. And that's usually why we graft around teeth or we want to treat existing recession. So that's when we like, you know, can coronally advance flaps or do tunneling or something like that. When you're grafting around implants, what I would normally do is you're either fixing a a qualitative or a quantitative deficiency. So often when I do like FGGs and stuff around implants, um, it kind of depends on what, what Restoration they're having, like whether they're having like an overdenture, which needs to clip in and rub around those implants. And they, if you imagine over time, if you always clip the denture in, take it off, clip in and take it off, there's always that friction. And if you don't have um, a good amount of thick tissue, so crotinized tissue, but also attached tissue that won't move, then you can get bacteria getting in and you can get further recession. You can get damage and complications to those implants. Even like single teeth as well. Um, but also sometimes around like implants and teeth, sometimes we actually, um, adjust and correct the mucogingival junction. So a common way I describe it to patients is sometimes when like, you know, when you move your cheek or when you're talking and you're, you know, you're eating and chewing and things like that, the tissue around your tooth and the tissue around your implant should be attached. It shouldn't move. If it moves every time because of a frenum or because there's not enough thick attached tissue there then you're always going to get bacteria and stuff in. And that's how we get a lot of implant failures and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of different techniques with like, you know, for example, FGGs or um, like, you know, grafting around teeth and stuff. But the, the main thing is you're, you're trying to improve a quantitative and qualitative deficiency
2: <laughs> just
1: for protection. Um, there are even cases where sometimes when you do an immediate anterior implant where... You'll actually, you know, graft some bone. Like you'll take the tooth out. You'll, you know, um, put the implant in. You'll graft some bone, which is what we call dual zone grafting, from like Dennis Tynell. If you want to read up on that later, that's a really good article, uh, and it's been and it's been done for such a long time. But also, they'll graft like soft tissue as well, because every time you lose like a front tooth, or every time because those front teeth, the buckle plate and the bone on the outside is really really thin and narrow. When you remodel that, sometimes you can get a bit of that. Um, not get a bit of that back, but you can minimize some of that shrinkage with um, your bone graft, like like a, if you think of it as like a ridge preservation. But soft tissue can also help to account for that too. It's something where, <clears throat> yeah, like my analogy is like the soft tissue um, around a tooth or an implant, is sort of like a, it's it's like a raincoat. It's like a puffer jacket where you want that to be there and you want it to be thick enough to protect you. From from bone loss and from getting cold and you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I wanted to ask just another question about just like you know getting into all of this and. Yeah, were there any things after all like our, our our topic segment is called what i wish i knew right were there any things that like you wish you knew getting into just like the surgery and like grafting um and getting your hands dirty with this or things like tips that you would give and i feel like a big thing that you've kind of already mentioned was just like you know getting good at extractions and like surgical extractions and practicing raising flaps and sutures because that seems to be a really key skill set that that keeps coming up right but there are, are there any other tips or you know tidbits that you'd like to share about that
1: i think like especially when like when you're doing like surgery when you're taking teeth out i think you should always do things purposefully like you shouldn't my analogy before is like and this is what i used to tell dentists who i used to work with in town so it's like when you for example are taking a tooth out and you're sectioning it like always break it in a way that you want it to break don't sort of just luxate and hope that it's um, like broken or like, you know, don't don't hope that it'll break in the way. Like you should always do something purposefully. Um, and that's why I think like even when you start to get into implants and um, grafting and stuff, it's really important to understand like what you're doing and you have to make sure that you see it and understand it. Like with grafting and when you split the flap, it's really important to actually learn that properly before you do the bone grafting, whether that's through courses or with mentors and stuff like that. And you also have to understand um, why you're doing what you're doing. Like, why are you releasing that? Like, why is that important? And it all goes back to those initial principles. But even the type of sutures, like there's so many different types of sutures that we use. And it's all about those little details that make it, – it's it's what I call the little big things, right? They're little things where, like, you could put a simple interrupted suture there or you could put, like, a modified um, like, you know, laurel suture or you could put like a vertical mattress, but you have to understand why you're doing it because you have to understand what it does because with, with every type of graft, I'll probably use like, you know, four or five different types of sutures for each sort of surgery and they're all put in different areas and they're all put purposefully. Um, I think it's really important to sort of learn that and one thing and one great way of learning that is even just like studying other people's surgeries. Um Like, remember how, what we touched on at the start is, you know, we'd blow up the photo and then, you know, after every surgery, Matt would be like, okay, well, you know, you did the surgery, like, how'd you go? And I was like, yeah, it was pretty good. And he's like, show me the closure because that's the most important part. And then you dissect it and then you can see, okay, well, this might not be, have like, this these sutures might have been a little bit too close or could have been a bit more even. This could have been a bit deeper. Um, I should have put one more there. Like that's something that you can really dissect and learn for future. Um, yeah. And, um, I think don't be afraid of mistakes as well. Like just obviously make sure that you're, um, confident enough to sort of take on the case and you have to make sure that you've, you've got, for example, someone there, like a mentor, like even sometimes, I had cases where like I would do something new and then it's just even the comfort of having knowing that if, for example, something goes wrong that I can fix it because I've got a mentor or someone with me that made it better. Like there are cases where I said, well, even if like Matt, um, like if I, if I started a surgery and I said, well, even, it's like that comforting thought psychologically that if someone's there to, for example, bail you out or to help you, then you you can sort of like, even if they don't end up bailing you out, or even if you don't need help, you're more comfortable doing it. Um, Whereas I think if, for example, sometimes you're a solo practitioner and you're sort of learning, then I think you should definitely be a bit slower and be a bit more careful. Um, And like, just, just, I don't know. There's always like little funny mistakes that you always hear of. Like, you know, there's cases where I was talking to a good friend of mine, Tim, Tim Maxwell, who I think was on the podcast. We were talking last night, (laughs) shout out to him. And then there was a case where, like, I think he did um, an implant and a simultaneous bone graft, but he forgot to – so he closed everything up and the surgery was mint, but then he forgot to actually put the cover screw onto the implant. So what that means, yeah, so what that means obviously is if you don't have a cover screw, if you don't have something connecting to your implant and you've got bone and soft tissue that grows in, then, you know, it gets infected or it's really hard. So after like a two- or three-hour long surgery, he's like, oh, well, shit, now you got to – cut all the sutures off, open it up, take all the bone off, take all the membrane off, put the sh- screw back on and then put everything back in. And it's those cases where obviously that's the last thing that you ever want to hear or do or see when you're doing that surgery. But it's something where um, like those mistakes that you make, you'll never make again. But it's also the, the, mental, the mental fortitude in the surgery to that. Even if you um, screw something up or even if you make a mistake like you perforate a flap or something, while you're in the surgery, you can't let that phase you. You can't like, you know, sort of you just gotta take take that on the chin and then just keep going and do the best that you can. And that's a really hard thing too with surgery, because sometimes the surgeries can be pretty long and then sometimes not everything goes to plan. And then you have to have the mental fortitude to say, Okay, well this happened, I'll fix it. Instead of just being and worrying about that all the time.
0: I really like how this conversation has kind of come full circle because this is kind of what we started off with, right? But yeah, then exactly. But now we've kind of learned more things and now we've kind of ended it off with just, yeah, coming back with that resilience and that attitude, which I think is like a really big part of dentistry. So much of it seems to be just like your attitude going into it, your willingness to, you know, not let mistakes kind of knock you down but just get back up and like yeah, next time will be another day exactly. and you'll be better from it, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.